Welcome, good evening. Thanks for coming along on a Friday night when uh, there were lots of other things vying for your attention. If all economists were laid out end to end, they would not reach a conclusion. So spoke George Bernard Shaw, and uh, since we're speaking here at the uh, LSE, I thought it would be appropriate to open with a quote of one of its founders. I discovered when doing some research that the LSE idea this, it came up with over a breakfast meeting, which must have been the first power financial breakfast meeting. But underneath Shaw's ironic remark is the truth that all writers and readers of fiction know, that the joy and the terror lie in the unfolding story and not on the end. So we might arrive at the last page, but the human drama goes on. Uh, Gillian Tett, who's the assistant editor of the FT, remarked recently in an interview, the people of the background in the arts and humanities usually consider the city and finance to be grubby and boring. Of course, the credit crunch changed all that, and it's no surprise that a global banking crisis would uh, provide writers with plenty of material. All those dramatic plot lines, the avarice and greed, negligence, incompetence and moral frailty. But what we want to ask tonight is what do these fictional responses add and reveal to our understanding and our, what do they reveal about our attitudes towards finance? Can novels provide real insight into what has happened? Do they add to our understanding of what we're experiencing in real time? And what do stories about money tell us about the human condition? Now, everybody always says that panels are distinguished, but I have to say that it would be difficult to, fi to find one, or to find three people who would be better equipped to reflect on finance and fiction. And all of you who have not yet worked out what you're going to read this year need look no further, because these three guys can provide you with plenty of material. Um, let me introduce, on my left here is Professor John Sutherland. We met very early this morning on the Today programme, and we're still alive. <laughs> uh, John is an Emeritus Professor of Modern English Literature at University College London. He's taught in universities worldwide and is a visiting professor at California Institute of Technology. He's the author of many books and articles with a particular interest in Victorian fiction, the history of publishing and 20th century fiction. His biography of Stephen Spender was shortlisted for the Whitbread Biography Award. Other titles include How to Read a Novel, A User's Guide, A Memoir, The Boy Who Loved Books, and Magic Moments, Life-Changing Encounters with Books, Film, Music. He writes for The Guardian. He's a well-known literary reviewer and was Man Booker Prize judge in 2005. John's recent book, Lives of the Novelist, seems to have taken up permanent residence on my kitchen table. This history of fiction in 294 lives will lead you all to writers you've not yet discovered and fascinate you with biographies of those that you love. Hot off the press is his Dickens Dictionary, an A to Z of England's greatest novelists, from America, bastards, cannibalism, cats, to spontaneous combustion and the zoo, it offers a uniquely personal guide to the great man's work. Described by Claire Tomlin as the sharpest and wittiest of literary commentators. Enough, enough. <laughs> John Sutherland's love of the quirky and offbeat shines warmly through this enjoyable book, which often makes me laugh out loud. Um, next up is DJ Taylor. He was born in Norwich and is the author of two biographies, Thackeray and Orwell Alive, which won the Whitbread Biography Prize. Described as one of the finest of our 21st century, 21st century novelists, David has written nine works of fiction with a rich and varied cast of ca characters that include Victorian swindlers, struggling writers, management consultants, and football club owners. He's a critic, a reviewer, and writer of literary studies on fiction. He writes for The Independent, The Guardian, The Spectator, The New Statesman, and anonymously for Private Eye. No longer. <laughs> 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 David's most recent novel, Derby Day, was 
long listed for last year's Man Booker Prize and tells the story of an elaborate betting scam and a magnificent horse called Tiberius upon whose performance many destinies depend. It's a beautifully crafted tale about the transformational power of money and a reminder that the thrills of the trading floor are not all that different from the Victorian racetrack. His next novel will be out in two weeks' time called Second Hand Daylight and is a sequel to the acclaimed At the Chime of the City Clock. And our third panellist tonight is Justin Cartwright. He was born in South Africa and lives in London. His novels include the Booker shortlisted In Every Face I Meet and the Whitbread Novel Award winner Leading the Cheers. Five of his books have been shortlisted for the Whitbread Novel Award and his novel The Promise of Happiness won the Hawthorne Prize, the Sunday Times South Africa's Literary Prize and the inaugural Jewish Cultural Award. He's a critic and a contributor to BBC's Front Row, a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and has been a judge for the International Man Booker Prize. Described by Boyd Tonkin as a writer who has delivered more and better examples of the state of the nation novel than anyone of his generation, Justin Cartwright's last book, Other People's Money, which we'll talk about tonight, is a gripping tale of money and class and offers an intriguing portrait of a family of private bankers in the grip of a crisis. As the central character, Julian, walks through the city streets, he wonders if all the cranes and bridges are a tribute to man's energy and vision. At least, he reflects, the Victorians were making something, something that existed and that you could stumble over, something very different, in fact, from the Gaussian bell curve. So that's who uh, the panellists are. Each of them was going to speak for about five minutes on the topic. Um, they may read some extracts from some of the fiction. Then we'll continue the panel discussion until about 7.45. And then I hope you will all be itching to join in. John, thank you. Um. I'm here really as the um, as the louse on the locks of literature, the uh, uh, the only person who doesn't have any creative uh, items on my CV. Uh, in her very generous uh, introduction, uh, Afric did not mention her own recent novel published yesterday, On the Floor, uh, which is a, a very uh, I think very kind of a gripping, it is literally a page turner, but it's also a tutorial about, um, about high finance at a critical moment of its transition uh, in the 1990s. And uh, a shrewd feminist satire on what D.H. Lawrence calls the man's world. So D.H. Lawrence is talking about the man's world of school teaching, but in Africa's case, it's the man's world of, of the stock market banking and uh, those people that one used to call gnomes of Zurich. Now, uh, I, my own interest, as, as Afric said, is, is in 19th century literature, primary, primarily in 19th century fiction. The very famous question which Paul Dombey asks in Dombey and Son of his father, who of course is an uh, international uh, trader in, they're not sure what goods, they could be anything from slavery to, to, to spices. Uh, little Paul, uh, the doomed child asked, what is money? And oddly his father can't answer, even though his, his father lives for money. Money is the most important thing in his life. And one of the things which, which I've learned from reading fiction, in fact I've learned more from reading fiction than almost anything else in my life, certainly personal experience, but one of the things I've learned from fiction is all sorts of things about the world that I would, I think, not have picked up from textbooks. Now, what is money? It's a very good question. Um, I mean, uh, David Hume called it abstract happiness, which is a very pregnant phrase, but rather hard to 
to unpack. Um, but in um, a novel like The Way We Live Now by uh, Anthony Trollope came out in the early 1870s. Very often novels about finance are inspired by financial crisis, so there was a big crash uh, in the early 70s. In a, a novel like The Way We Live Now, Trollope very interestingly explained something to me which I grappled with in John Stuart Mill, which is, you know, what is paper money? I mean, how does something as valueless as paper have the huge amounts of value that we put on it? If I take out a 20 pound note and burn it, it would be almost like taking my trousers off. People would be shocked. Um, in fact, we, there is this kind of fetishization of money, which is very, very hard to explain. Now, um, what, what Trollope does in that novel, for those of you that don't know, is he, he talks about different kinds of paper. He talks about the kinds of paper which novelists use, like Lady Carbridge, right, to write their fiction. He talks about the kind of paper which is the IOUs, which uh, these rather raffish young men exchange between themselves over the gaming tables of the Bear Garden, Garden Club. He talks about the paper, which is the valueless shares uh, which Melmott uh, manages to sell to all and sundry before there's a huge crash. Now, reading that novel, you get, it seems to me I, I, I mean, it, it's, not, it's not sort of, I think, excessive to say that I came out understanding a bit more about what was in my wallet, in my pocket, uh, than, than when I started reading. And that, it seems to me, is, is, is one of the big payoffs of reading the kinds of fiction which Africa's written, which Justin has written, uh, and Derby Day is also a, a novel which centers around gambling, uh, which, which, which David has written. So it would also seem to me that one of the areas on which we need tuition or education is money. Let's say there's an awful lot of fiction about sex, and you know I've learned a lot about sex from reading books, and much more about sex from reading books than what I've learned in bed. Though I can't read books in bed, perhaps. Um, and you know, history as well. I've learned a lot about his history from from reading, you know, historical novels. And I've learned more about Scottish history from reading Scott. I've learned a lot about nineteenth-century history from reading uh, the Flashman novels, which is strikes me as one of the most entertaining sort of uh, courses of, of historical education that a person can come across. But now it seems to me I, I I want to know more about what I want to know more about who it is that's messing my life up in these ways. Why why my friends are being you know, friends whose lives are being ruined, actually. I can think, think of one or two people whose lives in the last two or three years since November 2008 have, have really actually been drastically sort of affected. And I, you know, I, I read novels and I, I think I understand slightly better, and in some cases more than slightly better, uh, what's at the root of it all. And I'm very grateful for that. And I'll pass over with, with, with that remark to um, today or just to another note. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, I, the kind of just go back to sort of first creative base as a, as a novelist. Um, what the, the kind of novels I've always liked reading um, are usually about power. Uh, power in innumerable variegated forms. I mean, the, the power power shifts in individual relationships, but also the actual wielding, the formal manipulation of power. In other words, the, the way that a country, the way that a, a nation state, the way that a smaller entities, the, the, the corporations and um, financial institutions, the way they work, who owns things, who runs things, who's in charge. 
Now, um, Victorian novelists obviously was, was fascinated by this, and it was a great deal easier in the 19th century, I think, to work out where uh, the basis of power lie, uh, who was pulling the strings. Um, you know, you could simply look and you could see who the person was who owned the land on which you, you lived and to whom you, you, you paid your rent, and it would be fairly easy to follow a causative contingent chain back to the person who was running something. It's a lot more difficult for writers to do that now, because uh, the identity uh, of the people pulling the strings is, is much more obfuscated than it was, say, 150 years ago. Um, the Victorian novel, I think uh, John is absolutely right, but the, the marvellous thing about Dombey and Son is that here is Mr. Dombey, this, this Herculean, Herculean Titanic financial figure. We never really know what it is that he's doing. How does Mr. Dombey make his money? Dickens never tells us. Uh, many a Victorian novel contains a swindler whose you know, practical swindling tricks never really reveal to you. But there are distinctions to be made, and Dickens famously was, was not so much not interested, but did not know anything about how people actually did jobs and worked and made, um, you know, made the, the, the filthy lucre that they came home with. Um, Thackeray, on the other hand, had actually had uh, an early career as a bill discounter in the early 1830s. Um, and he knew whereof he spoke. Uh, he'd lost quite, he'd lost nearly all his money in the, in the Indian banking crisis of the mid-1830s. So he had a very, um, uh, he had a very, very sort of sharp idea of how money sort of came and went out of, out of your wallet, out of your bank vault. Uh, and then you get Trollope, who, and again, I, I agree with John, I, I learned a great deal about the workings of the mid-Victorian financial system just by reading Trollope's novels, even, even to the point you know, when Trollope, using his own experience, would recall that the visitor of the moneylender, what do you say, Jabez Maruan in The Three Clerks, who would come along and, and beg that his young client should be punctual. Um, um, and, you do, you, and, and the other thing, too, Trollope, Trollope's astuteness conveys itself in uh, his novels are crammed with very intelligent young women who know the value of inherited wealth. And they know that if they can have £10,000 to get married on that, provide their, 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 the woman and their indigent husband with £400 a year in the 4%. Uh, there was a time, I think, in the 1860s when, the, when, the, when um, securities went up from 3% to 4%, and this, is, I think, is marked in Trollope's, in Trollope's novels. Um, what you don't get in England in the 19th and early 20th century is the kind of vast forensic study of, of finance that American novelists like Theodore Dreiser are capable of. I mean, and Dreiser famously wrote that the Cowboy trilogy of novels in the, around about the time of the Great War, which followed the fortunes of a particular industrial, a particular banker on the Chicago Exchange in the 1870s and 1880s. And this is done with absolutely forensic precision, uh, you know, far more astute, far more engaged than a British novelist, a novelist on this side of the Atlantic was capable of. Um, talking about the kind of books, there have been plenty of city novels uh, throughout the 20th century, and H.G. Wells has written them, Jamie Priestley wrote one or two. There's, um, they, they were put to, to rather um, compelling metaphorical use in some of the early volumes of Anthony Pohl's Dance the Music of Time sequence. There's a wonderful Pohl novel called The Acceptance World. Now, an acceptance is uh, the piece of paper you get when you discount it, when you, you have a bill accepted by a discount house in the city of London. And Paul, Paul very cleverly uses this as a metaphor for one's emotional life, for the, the, the way in which one makes one's way through the world. You know, we're all of us either having our, in, in, in metaphorical terms, having our personal bills accepted or refused by the people that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. The problem, I suppose, with any number of, of what are what sort of loosely known as state of the nation uh, novels written um, in the last few years, and I think if you were going to pronounce a general rule over their, their variegated heads, it would be that um, there are an awful lot of immensely intelligent people who work in finance who have a great deal, a great many interesting things to say about it, but they don't write novels. 
And there are a great many highly intelligent, perceptive novels who want to write State of the Nation novels involving city characters, but they don't know enough about the city. Uh, and there is a kind of, uh, you can draw a kind of Venn diagram about this, and I, I won't mention the name of the novelist or the book, but there was quite a well-known State of the Nation novelist featuring, you know, the inevitable hedge fund trader a couple of years ago, and uh, a newspaper gave this novel to a hedge fund trader to read, and he remarked, oh, terribly interesting, man's clearly done his homework, knows a very great deal about hedge fund dealing, done, you know, read all the right books, read the, you know, obviously been reading the Financial Times week in, week out. Now you ought to write a novel about it. Um, and that shows some of the difficulties um, involved. I, I, I used to work on the periphery of the city myself, in no means in quite such an imbricated way as well. But, um, and I suppose, I, I thought that it would give me material. You know, I thought, however tedious it was, it would give me something that I could sort of focus on creatively. The problem was, I discovered at the end, that it didn't. I was just so grateful to get out of it, to not be there anymore, to have to deal with these awful people in the marketing department. I won't name the firm, but I'm, I'm afraid it, it, it became, became a creative dead end. I find it much more fruitful uh, to write novels about bygone city practice, say in the 1930s when the Victorian age, than, than now. I just don't think that, to go back to the point I began with, I just don't think that I understand it enough anymore, which is, is really rather sad for someone who you know, obviously can see, imagines that he bestrides the world by some intellectual philosophy and can work out everything about anything. It is really rather humbling how, how ignorant I am now about the way the world works. Justin. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think I come with this in a slightly different direction. There are all sorts of things that both my fellow panelists said that I agree with. Um, one thing that did, I did, you mentioned Anthony Pohl, and Anthony Pohl said the views you give in interviews are a bit like the kit that's kept in the barracks, it's for inspection only. And after a year of talking about myself, I'm beginning to realise that I've got a whole series of theories I don't believe in. John Fritzee has a nice line, he says, I have beliefs, but I don't believe in them. And I'm getting to that point, so it's in relation to the city. But what I've always tried to do is start with characters. So I've always thought that a novel is essentially about characters. And you see, you know, if you are dealing with a city, you don't have to master, I didn't, certainly didn't master every aspect of city trading, but I did try and find out about how trust would work, for example, because there's the the heart of my book is a, a swindle, or a near swindle, uh, 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 transferring assets to a bank that's clearly going down the drain high speed. And I spoke to a fund manager and I said, would they use their money or their own money? Or would they use the client's money? He said, they'd use the client's money, they use their own money. It'd be absolutely pointless. And there is a sort of another aspect of my book too, which is really that I don't think that money is the main thing in life. And the problem with bankers, in my experience, I've talked to a lot of them in the past couple of years, or a couple of years before writing books, they think that is it, there is nothing else, and it is self-justifying. But of course, the problem with bankers and believing in markets is that you don't have any responsibility for the social side of life. You have no responsibility. So if you know, pork bellies go up or down, you make some money, but you don't really care about the people who are farming the pigs or trying to sell the pigs or whatever. Um, and so that was, that's where I started, and with my, and also I've also culled a composed trollop that I liked, because I want to talk ever so briefly about the ethics. <clears throat> a certain class of dishonesty, he said, dishonesty so magnificent in its proportions, and climbing into high places, has become at the same time so rampant and so splendid that there seems to be no reason for fearing that men and women will be taught that, to feel that they have dishonesty. 
And it's strange, isn't it, that we we feel we're in a, I think most of us think, in, a, in, in an era when there is no consensus about beliefs. There's no consensus on values. And it, you know, you can, the problem with politicians in my experience, I used to work, because you may know for David Steele and David Owen, is that they don't actually, they believe they can solve problems. They're unable to just sort of go along with it. That's why endless, endless programs, every day they announce something new, they're going to solve the bike lane problem in York Way or with Latvia. They're going to do all kinds of things. They're going to give money. My former colleague Nick Clegg is going to give money to prevent, to get firms to employ people who don't really want to be employed. You know, it's just nonsense. It's complete and utter nonsense. And so, uh, when you write a novel of this nature, in my case, I started very clearly. I always think that the, as John was suggesting, we know a lot more about societies from novels than we do about, than we do from politicians, for example, and many other people. Where I originated in South Africa, I mean, it was pretty clear from an early age that ideas had consequences. But you wouldn't have found that in the, in the newspaper. You would have found it in some of the newspapers. But you wouldn't have found it in any government's statements. And that's a sort of stultifying thing that the world strangely has failed to rid itself of. So I always start, as I say, from the idea that the character is the way in. And that really means being plausible. So the danger for a state of the I and mean, I know there are budding writers here, but the, the way in is never to have a sort of scheme, particularly in a novel like mine, like David's. You don't want a sort of financial breakdown. What you have to have is characters, and then they show you, as they always say in creative writing, showing rather than telling. And that is, I think, the object of the exercise. On the um, one other point I'd make is I think that actually State of the Nation novels become too limited. It's always been my view that State of the Nation, modern novels are by and large State of the Nation novels. The writers that I admire most is Saul Bellow, Marilyn Robinson, and, and, um, uh, John Updike, who I knew quite well. Um, it's interesting when you look at their novels closely, they are quite often State of the Nation novels. I mean, Rabbit, Angstrom, is absolutely brilliant, in my view, underrated. Fated, but somehow considered just not quite at the very top of John's work. The great, I mean, Rabbit Angstrom is an absolutely wonderful creation, and what he represents is all the aspirations of normal middle America. And it's John's great, was John's in Northrond Updike, John's great achievement to make him completely believable, even though in many ways it was loathsome. So that is what I've sort of aspired to, not always successfully, but that's been my, my aim in, in, in uh, writing novels to start with character and try and produce out of that something convincing, as, as John Updike also said, to look at the ordinary closely and by close examination make it extraordinary. Can I pick up on that point exactly? Because one, one of the what seems to me as a, as a former bank, one of the pictures that emerges, and there's plenty of readers here of the financiers, um, is that they are becoming the new villains in fiction. Uh, hedge fund man managers are the new hate figures. Um, they're evil geniuses, almost like crude representations, entirely motivated by money, and in, in, in uh, some cases, basically driven to destroy the world. Now, the difference with other people's money is the private banker, Julian, and the family are very complex and very ambivalent. There's a sense that Julian, although he's effectively about to 
uh, bend the rules. He's doing it and he's aware of the moral complexity of what he's doing. Did you start out with that premise or did your research in talking to bankers make you realise that actually the story is much more complicated than it might have uh, No, research for bankers didn't help in that respect, to be honest. Um, <laughs> what, what Sorry, because I need With Julian, he didn't want to be in the business. That's how I started. I knew somebody who'd been in a very big business and he didn't really want to be there and he hated it and he didn't do it terribly well. And with Julian, I, I have him with, I have Julian and his, the, the, the chairman's ex-wife, the chairman's wife, Fleur, both have doubts about <coughs> banking and how, how it's become so important and how bankers regard themselves as the maker cheese of, uh, of the, the present time. You know, and uh, I, a Canadian banker has asked why Canadian banks didn't get into trouble, and he said because they didn't go to the bankers didn't go to the opera, <laughs> and what that meant was that they didn't they knew what they were supposed to do, and that's what they stuck to. And I think the, the general delusion uh, was that you could almost do anything and get away with it. I mean, one of the most astounding scams of all the time, and I used it in a very modified way for my bank was Lehman Brothers, who had fifty billion billion dollars off the books. And they convinced themselves that it was possible to keep it <coughs> off the books while saying we're doing very well, our profits are down a tiny bit, but we're actually coming through this terrible crisis. And guess what? They had, they, they, no lawyer in America would certify them. But they managed to get a London firm who issued a report saying what they were doing was, was fine and perfectly legal. So, how different are today's financial rules to the mammals? Well, I, it depends how you identify a villain. I, I, I'm very interested in your book because it seems to me that, that you know, obviously at the heart of all this is digitization of the computer. And when, we, when fiction traditionally tries to demonize the computer or, or, or to conceptualize the risks of computerization, it comes up with things like HAL 900 in, in uh, 2001. Or um, Skynet in Terminator, you know, becomes conscious. Or in fact, the singularity in the novels of, of, of Bernard Injay. But it seems to me that, that the real, I, I spent um, 25 years teaching at Caltech, and the, the powerhouse in the division I, I was in was the, was the economics lab, where in fact um, a man called a very distinguished um, uh, game theorist, economist called Charlie Plot, used to actually get you know, sort of subjects together and put them into auction situations in front of keyboards and he'd work out from that the various kinds of, of formulae and sort of various kinds of e equational sort of uh, uh, keys that, that, that they could then as, as it were feed into the whole hedge fund sort of um, machinery. And one of the things about um, Afric's book uh, on Flora is that there's a character in it called Pine Man who's actually like Jabba the Hutt, you know, he's actually fat, slob, but at the same time he's a kind of a, a whiz, you know, he's kind of a geek. Um, and it, it's that kind of physical, mechanical conjunction which is very dangerous. It seems to me the real problem is that computers are taking over, but not quite in the way that, you know, sort of um, Arnold Schwarzenegger can come and blast into pieces. Um, they're, they're, it's much more pervasive and it's much more dangerous. So when you ask here, what is the villain different? Well, the, the villain isn't the kind of international Jewish financier. So Charles lost his nerve because Melmott and finally made him American and Irish, forgive me, uh, rather, rather <laughs> than Jewish. But in fact, it, but, but, but it, 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 it's, you know, it, it, it's, you know what, what we all have in our pockets and what 
on our, on, on our desks now. And it, that, that's very, very interesting. The novel, I, novels, I think, can alert us to that in ways which I think, I don't know if that's happening. There's, there's, there's a kind of conception of step change going on, isn't there, which you yeah. introduced there, which is that, uh, in fact, whereas what describes the Victorian novel um, is character, and just to the point there, but it's the point now that there is certainly this data is almost playing more a central role than some of the people in financial novels these days. In that everything is out, everything is recoverable in a way that it wasn't really. You, know, you can take it's like it's like sort of tracing a piece of spaghetti back from one end back to the plate. Everything can be traced back to its source, and, and financial instruments can be deployed and redeployed and traced back. And I think there's a, there, there is a sort of sense in which um, you know, lived experience is, is taking rather a back seat. Um, it's that's that's my question, I say, Justin's I don't know if you agree with it, but it seems to be the one place you can discuss race honestly now is in fiction. Oh yeah, uh, the one, there's all sorts of things you know which are taboo. You know, it's just that fiction is kind of free fire zone. It seems to be finance maybe one of those. I don't know. The money. Yeah. No, I, I think I, I think you're absolutely right. There's so much. It's uh, it's you know sort of to widen out a bit. It's I mean, one of the reasons um, I think that um, modern comedy is so dreadful is that there are so few things you're actually allowed to be funny about anymore. I, this is not a sort of corporate sort of thing about Vernon Manning again, but there is just so much for whatever reason is, is pushed to the side of any time. I think it's the same you know, with so much sort of public reporting of, of, of events. You know, the, the, the novel, and particularly when it comes to things like finance, is, is, yeah. is one of the venues where this kind of thing can be discussed. But then you have the problem that it's so difficult for um, you know, people without that degree of financial training to understand the complexity. I mean, the great thing about it, and I, I, I remember the, the bearings crisis in, I was working in the city at the time of the bearings crisis in 1995 when Nick Leeson was discovered to have sort of just lost billions and billions of pounds on foreign exchange training. And the problem was a managerial problem in that it, what the derivatives that he was dealing in were so complicated that his manager didn't know what they were. And so the person to whom he reported Provided he made the books look good, you know. Again, he was there was all this sort of all this off-balance sheet stuff that nobody knew about, but the actual formal figures made it look as if he was a boy as a whiskey. And so his line manager said, "Keep on with it, Nick. Keep on going." And then suddenly, all the positions unwound. However many billions of pounds down. Well, it's class as well as the Baron Boy versus the That's right. Yes, that, 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 that distinction too. Is well, actually, I, a friend of mine was working at Barry's at the time, and he actually worked in Singapore. And what he actually denies it now, but he actually said, we knew something was wrong, but while the bonuses were right, you know, it strikes me that a rogue trader is somebody who gets caught, and an absolute boy genius is somebody who doesn't get caught in the city. And what happened with Barry's was that the, the, the management had changed. The side that was in took over and they didn't really uh, sort of faction of the bank took over and they didn't know what was going on. They didn't, as you rightly say, they had no idea what was happening. And they just kept very quiet and thought, well, we'll just ride this a little longer. And that was my impression too, talking to bankers, that as long as the things were going okay, the ethical dimension wasn't unless absolutely under pressure. They didn't sort of rake it over at all. This, this produces a problem as well in terms of the fictional representation of these kind of clashes and dilemmas. It's, it's one that, that John made with his, his point about the distinction of the, bar, the Barra boys out there on the trading form, you have the, the Etonians in the boardroom. The, the problem is uh, to try and conceive of these situations in non stereotypical terms. And I think one thing, uh, we talked about this before in the green room before we came in here, 
One thing that I think is noticeable about those novels that attempt to go for the grand conspectus, you know, the way in which London operates as a, as a mechanism, the dynamism that underpins it, is that you do seem to get the same kind of people turning up in them. You know, you've got the banker, you've got the... Uh, some of you got the, uh, at least two of those in crops. I mean, you've got the Pakistani news agent, you've got the terrorist, you've got the little old lady living in the house who doesn't know that it's worth several million pounds. And the footballers. And the footballers. The footballers and the footballers, yeah. yeah. You've got this, there, there is a kind of, you know, there's an enormous sort of multitudinous, multicultural London world teeming out there. And yet the dramatic person out of fiction that represents it seems to me to be extraordinarily limited at the moment. I don't know what you think, Justin. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I went to Chelsea the other day, mm. and I rather regretted not having a football because <laughs> I was in the executive box right at the top with a friend, and I said, how many people in this room have been to have done time? He said, quite a lot of them, but a lot more should <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, the, it's legitimate, but I think the danger is that if we're talking about two books we both know that talk about Muslim possible terrorists, mm. the same subplot. The problem is it's very hard for to get into the mind of those people and do it realistically. It's a lot easier to talk about the old Herobian twit in one of them. You know, immediately you say old Herobian twit, you know what he's talking about, it's a sort of label. Whereas I don't think in either case that these two fairly recent State of the Nation financial novels, they, there was any, and, and it was going to say John Updike wrote a novel, and he didn't achieve it either. There was no very similitude about how a Muslim potential terrorist might think. Which suggests, doesn't it, that obliquity is the way into this, yeah. and that if you're going to write a city novel, then you might, you might be far more fruitful to, to imagine it from the perspective of uh, the person cleaning the offices after everybody's gone home, or somebody who's just at a slight angle to what's going on, who's not in the dealing room, who's not. But I think that's a, that's a, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's an observation you can make about fiction generally, and not just that that's you know, yeah. in the city. Well, did the did the 9/11 novels, in terms of writers pretty much rushing in, including the heavyweights, to, to deal with the topical theme, pave the way? for novelists to sort of, let's deal with the global financial crisis now? Um, I, I don't think so. No. I, I think the problem was that they were so heavily sentimental. You know, it was such an, a huge event for American writers that they kind of put the foot down on the pedal on this sort of too hard, and it was all, uh, almost a spiritual experience. Um, and I don't think they came anywhere near to understanding the sort of deep background of it. And I haven't obviously read them all, but I've read a few. And of course, it's, it's, very, it's, it's a very short-term perspective, even now. Um, I mean, you know, it's only ten and a half years since now. But wouldn't you think that it took at least a decade for anything fictional of any merit to be written about the Great War? It wasn't until the late 1920s that writers were kind of able to bring themselves to, to confront this this kind of thing, and uh, say in American culture, Vietnam has been steadily unraveling for decades now, and probably, you know, there will be some definitive Vietnam book will come in the next decade or the decade. It takes an awful long time for these things to work their way through um, the cultural topsoil, I think, to, to what lies beneath. Isn't it partly, and you get around this problem with other people's money because it's focused on a particular family and characters who are related. The problem, with it seems to me, with the other so-called financial novels, which are stated of, of, of the nation novels, is the cast of characters is simply too large. And that the number of subjects, everything from premiership footballers to traders to... Um, well, women get a pretty rough deal in all of, the, in, in all of these novels. They're mostly bored of drinking latte or... Um, the problem is a question of scale, too many characters. 
I think, well, I mean, lots of characters are difficult to handle, and with, I mean, let's not mince words, with um, the latest capital, John Lanchester's given himself an enormous task, mm -hmm. and it's, some of it's amazingly good, but you get the impression that by the end he was rushing from one character to the other, giving the plates a spin, you know, before they fell down. Um, uh, just, I think, technically, it's, it's very difficult. Um, and I think that the thing that I'd like, that I also had introduced to my novel was I introduced to somebody who represents the exact opposite of materialism, somebody who, however mad, dotty, and initially unbelievable, is a, is, has a sort of heroic belief in the transformative power of art. And, you know, I believe that. In that sense, I, I didn't have to make it up. Whereas I guess if you have a, 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 a footballer important to play for Chelsea, from some African country, you need to know a heck of a lot about the background. And you'd need to know what it's like to be a footballer. I don't think it would be very easy because there's not an awful lot going on in most footballers that I've met, as heads anyway. You know, it's very basic. So can we go back to 1987, John? Bonfire of the first fictional banker and the first fictional trading floor, I think, the master of the universe. We first see him wrestling with these decks in Marshall and Park Avenue. Um, of course, it's really, it is a state of the novel. And this is Tom Wolfe, uh, a big, but it started as an attempt to do what Thackeray was doing. Well, exactly. I mean, it's sort of, uh, it's, um, it's a homage novel to Vanity Fair. And Tom Wolfe originally serialized it in slightly, in, in, well, not slightly, in, 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 in very different um, narrative form in Rolling Stone, the magazine, which is kind of indicated the kind of market he was going for very successfully. Um, and it takes off, you know, from, uh, I think, a remark that, that, that David um, uh, uh, knows very well in his you know, excellent biography of, um, of uh, Thackeray. He makes the point very often. Thackeray said, yeah, ours is a ready money society. But when you come down to it, you know, sort of when you unpeel the onion at, at the heart of, 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 of it all is, 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 is money and, and, and relations, you know, which are based on capitalism. And I suppose if you want to anticipate that, it came out pretty much the same time as the Communist Manifesto. Tom Wolfe's novel is very interesting in that respect because, in fact, it sort of um, it, it it not only portrays in a very melodramatic way uh, all sorts of things that are going wrong with America, not least the whole kind of race relations industry about which I don't think he could have actually written that kind of stuff about, you know, the, the, the sheer, you know, the sheer kind of institutional hypocrisy of, of, of the situation. He could have done it in a newspaper or in, in a kind of factual book. But also the fact that it, it, um, it, it, it is morally decadent. Um, Afric's book opens with, with um, a woman in a state of really complete breakdown, moral breakdown, physical breakdown, um, which is related, I think, you know, to the system in which she's been very successful. But success is is success is, is kind of um, you know apples are sodden, it, it, it's ashes in the mouth. It's very very interesting analysis, I think, really. And, and in a sense, you can see there is a kind of underlying law. There's almost a theology in the novel. Looking for kind of moral purpose and, and, and the reason for it all. One of the reasons I think it, novels are such fascinating things, such fascinating instruments. And one of the reasons, of course, why 12,000 of them were published last year. 
11,000 of them shouldn't be, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> One of the interesting things about Bonfire of the Valley is the, the number of, of people in the t at the time, the number of MBA graduates who used to say, yes, it was Sherman McCoy who inspired me to want to come apply for the well, job. Um, but the context... But American Psycho takes off. I mean, the character of the that That takes a moral decadence you know, into yeah. sort of... And again, it's a fascinating novel. I mean, mm -hmm. sort of Patrick Bateman really is... You know, so he works in the same firm as, as, as Sherman in, uh, uh, in, in, in Bonfire of the Vanities. Um, and you know, sort of, I, I, you know, I, I, I think, I think Brett Easton is, is one of the most interesting novelists around at the moment, you know, because he, he's just so kind of sort of so violently on, on the ball, you know, it's kind of stuff. It's sort of, um, but, but yeah, it's sort of uh, interesting thing to happen. You know, it seems to be a fiction, but. Americans seem to be able to do that, don't they? They're yeah, really on the ball. I mean, yeah, they just sink back into, you know, yeah. into real lethargy. But it's what Auden said. You know, all, all the poetry I wrote in the 30s didn't save a single Jew from the gas chamber. Do you feel that, that way about fiction? Well, I mean, do you think that your, 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 your novel actually made, made the marketplace better, just? Yes. It had a corrective effect. No, no, The lash of the. No, but if a few people thought about the effects of finance, that's interesting. I mean, I think more pertinent, sorry, not more pertinent than yours for me, is whether South African writers like John could say have done anything, and I think they have. And I think the disgrace was the ultimate state of the nation novel about that nation, and. Right. Yeah. I would argue that Tom Sharp's done all of this much. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Tom Sharp, yes. I, I nearly drowned in the bath when I first read it, Tom Sharp. <laughs> I can remember the day I couldn't get out of the bath. Yeah. But yeah, I think the State of the Nation novels in South Africa. Yeah. Although I, I read a thing recently by John Kutsu saying he feels that the whole publishing establishment and the uh, critics and reviewers are forcing upon him the title of South African novelist, but he doesn't really want that. He believes he's dealing with Australian novels now. Yes, he is. But he, but I mean, his, his influence was the great Russian writers, and there's another, you know, his, his primary influence is the Russian writers, and he's, he's I wouldn't say stolen, but he's written uh, to Master of St. Petersburg. I think it's uh, John Kutsu's masterpiece, and it's based really on Dostoevsky and his son. But it just so it shows how. One's understanding society is formed by novels. I think the point you're both making at some at some stage. You know, I think Russians, our understanding of Russian Russia is clearly based on Russian novels. Russians, I know, say we haven't a clue the translations. Well, around everything I know about America is based on American <laughs> novels. You know, this is people acquire information in slightly ridiculous ways. You can't, you know, help. I mean, you can't help, novelists can't help this, this kind of acquisition of, of data. I think one, one point I would make, actually, is simply, again, thinking about it in, in wider, fictive terms and the way the writer approaches a subject and what makes that subject alluring and entertaining. I think the thing, too, you know, to say, I only worked on the, on the city's um, accounting, peripheral accounting fringe. I used to work in what was called corporate copywriting for big accountancy firms, an extraordinary racket it was, and, and quite a humiliating way. And there was this... From, from the point of view of observing human experience, there was this sense that the fascination was the fascination of, say, an Oxbridge common room or an advertising agency or um, uh, you know, a school in that you had a closed society, more or less closed, with its own rules, its <coughs> protocols, its taboos, its, its secret languages, the theology that we were trying to use. And there you were observing this and sort of trying to come to terms with it. It reminded me rather of, I mean, Kingsley Amos always said that he got the idea from Lucky Jim 
published in the early 1950s, because he went to visit Philip Larkin, who got a job as librarian at the University of Leicester. Uh, this will be very germane to you as a woman. And, um, and he kind of looked around the senior common room and he said, there was this, all, this, there was all this material here, that had never, this world that had never really been developed. He said, it was like the SS in 1938. You know, <laughs> and I felt that about the city, that here is this extraordinary, um, almost not quite Masonic, because it wasn't quite as close to society that, but this, this place of curious rituals and, uh, you know, a nods, an interest given and received and, and nods noted and so forth. And it had never really been developed. It had never really been developed in creative terms. Like, I wrote a novel once, years and years ago, of a management consultant who has to investigate the, the shattered finances of a failing third division football club. It's based on Fulham, who were, before the fired money, a failing third division football club. And what really fascinated me, apart from the, the, the bizarre stylization of the management consultancy world, was the jargon. You know, the way in which people would come into a room on a Monday morning and suddenly say, yes, of course, these silos are not very proactive now. And I go, silo? So that's a new word that's coming over the weekend. And what does that mean? What is a silo? What is this? Well, I've never quite worked here. No. And, um, and this, this was fascinating because you had, you know, not only did you have the world, you had, uh, it was a world that had its structure, it had its kind of poetics, it had its language, and there you were trying to interpret it for people who knew, who knew as little, little about it as they might about a, a benighted Polynesian tribe. There's that, that's fascinating too, I think, in, in a purely kind of responsive way, the way in which the novelist might work, or which might, in the way in which mine worked. The novel that, that David is talking about, which I just read recently called English Settlement, published in 1994, is an extraordinary take on the city uh, as someone who worked there. And actually, um, I think you've managed to project into the future in a way that you probably don't remember because I wrote down, um, it, this is a management, an American management consultant in London who um, goes to, is sent to investigate a, a football club. And it, it's an absolutely fascinating read about football management consultancy and, crucially, technology. This is in the days when management consultants were sleeping on the floors, working on systems overnight and it was late the, it, it was at the time when all the, the, the seeds were laying for the, the unfolding that we've seen technology started and that started to well it's very kind of you to say that but I sort of, it was written I mean it was written in ten weeks off from you know the job working for the accountants firm and it seemed to me that it was one of those models that would come obsolescent almost as soon as it was written because uh, everything was, you know, you're quite right about the computer technology, it was changing exponentially almost by the day some new, some whizzy new device or program would come in that would render all that had happened, you know, all the systems of the previous five years were going to have to be updated because of something, some whiz kid in technology and IT had just, you know, like people were walking into IT departments getting hundreds of thousands of pounds for things they just thought up that could kind of change the way the systems worked. And it was, it was, it was an extraordinary atmosphere to be in, but it also meant that you were worried that whenever you looked at whenever you tried to pin something down, by the time you pinned it down, it would have changed beyond have all recognition. Um, but in fact, the reason I wrote about management consultant um, in a football club was because this was a novel about financial chicanery. And the tax accountant of my acquaintance pointed out to me that if, um, in the early 90s, if you wanted to launder some money you know, if you had lots of hundreds of thousands of pounds of £10 notes that you wanted to get into the system covertly, a great way to do it was a football club where thousands of people turn up every Saturday afternoon and in those days pay cash for tickets. Uh, so you had till after till full of fibres and you simply seeded them with a few of your own. 
bumped up the silver seats, nobody would notice, marbles were getting your money out there into a bank that they legally covered. So that it was just it was as simple a financial instrument as that. So if there's any budding man uh, management consultant, <laughs> you can't You see again, obsolescence eighteen years later, you can't do that because most people buy their tickets uh, using their credit card or yeah. phone or online. You, you don't just turn up with ten quid anymore. It's the same with rock concerts. Another example rock concerts in the old days, perfect way of laundering money. You know, want to put 200, get 200,000 pounds out into the economy without anybody noticing, do it at a rock concert. And you can't, again, it's all changed, you can't do it anymore. <coughs> Another way in which technology is kind of limiting the space in which the models works, which is something that really belong to it, but that, that's, that's, that's something that I, I find myself terrified by the way in which um, the space the model has had is being constantly squeezed by the way in which data and technology is pushing it. You know, I mean, Victoria, you know, there's a whole trollop model, and John will know it well, um, last chronicle of Barson. Whose whole 800 pages um, rest on the fact that uh, the principal witness who can clear, who is supposedly a thief, is incommunicado in Italy. It's, it's the dean's daughter, isn't it? And it's Mr. Harding's daughter, the dean's wife, Mr. Harding. And yet, you know, 150 years later, uh, one email or two phone calls can sort that out within a page and a half. But I find that very scary. Oddly enough, a regulator said to me that in international finance, it's impossible now. It's actually impossible. Mm. You cannot catch up. Partly because it's global. And you can't follow the data. No, you can't. You because and I, I, when I was writing the book, I was watching the um, uh, Goldman Sachs hearings. And Blankfein said, apart from justifying the fact they produced a fund which was bound to go no, in a belly up, it was designed to go down. But he said, we do millions of trades a day. I think he said five million. We don't, you know, we just do trades. That's all we do. I imagine a regulator trying to find out what had happened in the midst of five million trades in one day in Hilton and say it's not possible. The banality, the banality of it hasn't changed, has it? Because I mean, you know, in, in the 19, I mean, there are, you know, there's a rather good Simon Raymond novel which, which touches on it. It's the, uh, the Rich Pay Late, uh, which is about marvellous title, that, The Rich Pay Late, set in the late 1950s. And, uh, and one of the characters' fathers, who's a, you know, a, private, uh, a private investor, sort of complains that his, you know, stock, you know, that his stockbroker's advice is always just slightly out. And why is this? And, and the character who's uh, last said, it's quite simple. Your stockbroker is using you to advise larger clients, and you haven't worked this out. And he goes, ah, so that's why my, you know, because he is a pawn who's being used to appease bishops and knights. And I think you know, that was 15, 16 years ago. So it's just that the means and the scale are changing rather than the underlying motives. And the scale and technology. And I think that just before we move on to open it up to the audience, I just want to remind you of what you wrote in 1994 in that novel. Oh yeah, just because I think you it's might never good when people no, remind you of what no, you wrote in 1994. Because it's a, it's a great uh, lead into the future. Whatever happens, money lets up for a very bumpy ride. All the corporate reality softeners, all the add-on benefit brokers and profit redeployers such as myself, the management consultant, all the parasites who live off surplus were holding onto our hats. See? Well, certainly, well, you put your money on things, that. Were, things were about to go bad. I think it was actually, was it not, I think it was set. It was written in 1994. It was set in the early 90s when you could see that you could see that the bus was coming, and the sharps in firms were the ones who laid off people then, rather than waiting for it to have gone. And it was an awful. Again, this was an awful. My, my, my one memory, I suppose, my, my wife said much the same. She worked in publishing in London at the same time. Was that in that early 90s period, every six months the pack would shuffle, and everybody would be called in and a third of them would go out and not come back again. And, 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 the, and, and the employment pool got smaller and smaller, and you could see it, you could see it contract before we, you know, things then picked up again later on. And the 90s was quite a sort of, kind of volatile time to be around. 
wish we had a more kitchen So, that's a lot from us. Yes. Yes, thanks. thanks. Um, I think the most insulting uh, novel about bankers is The Sound of the Theory, Sound of the Theory, uh, Part 3 where Jason, the narrator, is very insulting, uh, very, uh, very funny. I mean, um, so the thing is that uh, Simon Fury, of course, by Faulkner, is divided into four parts, four different narrators, and, uh, and part three, because uh, Joe is the one, I think. Um, so the thing is that uh, uh, Jason's very rude about uh, Jews in that one, the Wall Street traders. Of course, he's rude about blacks as his number one sort of hate, but he's rude about everybody. And I think, um, so what's, I'm sure John Sutherland's read um, Sound of the Fury. <laughs> well, no, I, uh, I mean, you've answered your own question. But it, it, Jason is, is constantly sort of um, phoning in sort of um, share sort of bids, isn't he? It's and, and, and that's right. He, he's, <laughs> and he's, he's buying into the market as the market is falling. The kind of, the, you know, the, the depression is... is I, I, I can't remember the, the, the time scheme. It must be after Black Monday, is it? After October 29. And, um, and you know, he's, he's got this faith that if he keeps on buying into the market, he will rescue America. And meanwhile, behind him, of course, his own family is actually sort of in a... and the whole science is in a state of decomposition. What would you mean, rescue America? It wouldn't get up in South America. Yeah. I haven't, I, I haven't read The Sound of the Fury recently. Is, is, it, is it as good as, as I seem to remember it was, or is it... Oh, it's, it's the ultimate. Life is too short to reread novels. Any other questions? Yes. There's been an enormous amount of non-fiction written about this last crisis. Some of it's been very technical, but there have been books like uh, Julian Tett's uh, Food's Gold and the other book uh, called All the Devils Are Here, The cast of characters was, was almost sort of stranger than fiction. I, I wanted to say something about the sort of relationship with writing fiction about a, uh, a scenario which is full of such strange people. It's interesting because actually John Lanchester, in an interview um, with Marianne Foster earlier this week, the author of the book Capital, um, said that when he thought about writing about the credit crunch, um, he thought that novels could not accommodate unlikeliness, which I was rather surprised to hear, that the events were so unlikely and, and so extraordinary that they, so he wrote whoops instead, which is a, a very interesting non-fiction book on that. And I think Michael Lewis's books, The, the Big Short, you know, it, it, it takes a very creative, fantastic, it's probably the closest thing that you will get to the novelistic approach. But that's what that's what novelists learn to do. You know, like the greatest respect John Lancaster is work like that. That's important because you have to. You, you know, you may fail spectacularly, but you have to address this kind of thing. Uh, novels are about trying to accommodate the bizarre and indicate them into you know the way in which people actually live their lives. I mean. Without sort of wanting to lay on the you know, the flat of the trial, I mean, enormous. There's a Justin wrote a novel about. Maybe 1990. Um, no, 1990. No, the, the one. Yeah. Uh, the one about the. Look at it this way. Look at it this way. Yes, which um, features this uh, ghastly, morally vacant trader dealer called Miles, 
um, who was playing a little game of his own on the side and gets caught out by the uh, by the establishment by by his he's a he's got Arnie Switters and a brilliant character. He has a face. He has what's he had orange skin. He's been so long under the he's been so long under the lap. He plays a lot of tennis, Mr. Switters, and he susses, He works out what Miles is doing, and, and the whole Miles is kind of you know, the, the, the the supreme confidence which he goes about his job. And his firing and his humiliation and the piecing together of his life all take place in about four or five pages. And yet you're not um, you're not conscious of being bombarded by data of an insider's take on the city. You're you're you're, um, you're conscious of one man, perhaps not a very nice man, getting in above his head and failing and, and you know flailing away and trying to swim to the side. And and, I, and again, it's, everybody's utterly bizarre. I mean, you know, um, the, the the people wandering around in the novel, I suppose you could describe as grotesque, but to me they had an extraordinary kind of pungent sense of reality. I mean, were they based on real people? Did you just make it all up? Did you I did actually did you get, Yeah, I did. I did go to Singapore for a chance and saw the open outcry where they were you know, selling whatever it was. It's actually terrifying doing it with David because he knows more about I'm not he knows more about my novels than I <laughs> Sometimes I, when you mentioned Miles, I thought, oh yes, that was his name. You'd ask me straight. His name is Miles Goodall, isn't it? That's absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't even tell you the school we went to much on the No, but I mean, it was, I mean, do, honestly, I recommend it highly. And there's another marvellous one, too, where Justin does exactly the same thing, which is called Every Place I Meet, which again is about this kind of management consultancy boutique in the, in the early 90s, where suddenly they have got clients. Uh, and they go around and they have these extraordinary meetings where they talk about synergy and proactivity and uh, you know, what they can do to enhance the offering. To, and they haven't got any clients and they're not going really to make any money. And, and the, 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 the central character who was offered, uh, he was very chuffed to be offered a directorship and then suddenly realises that all the pension funds are collateral. So the phone bankruptcy will try and get people down. And, but again, that's, that's a novel based on, on character rather than the precise... Uh, dissection financial instruments. I think that's what that's what people have to do. And it was a very bizarre time, even in the, the kind of limited perspective that, that I had, I was conscious that there were really weird things going on and really weird people sort of strange and strange things happening. I mean the, the that, that famous kind of that symbolic city incident, the black bagging, so called, because it means that you're thrown out of the building with all your possessions in the black bin liner and uh, just sort of dumped it to the street. I remember once going out for Saturday I worked at Coopson Lightbrand. Um, fine, the patient's band of old sharks, they were. Um, we were going out for a sandwich, and in the time it took me to eat the sandwich and get back into the building, my immediate boss had been fired, and all the contents of his office had gone with him. So I wandered by along to have a word with Tony, and there's this black office with a, with a single chair and a desk in it, black bag. And he wrote a six-page letter of expostulation to the senior partner. I could have told him there was no point. He'd had it. He was an unperson, an almost Orwellian sense. He had never been employed there. He had never existed. He had gone. And, um, but that's what the novelist has somehow uh, nothing to deal with. There, there was actually a paper produced by, uh, I can't remember who it was, a, a, a joint paper of um, LSE and Manchester University, something you might remember in 2008, which made a case for the fact that literary representation uh, was in, in fiction was more useful than academic reports in explaining the world problems. And he used the example of the White Tiger, the novel by Aravinda Fadiga. Um, to, as the most extraordinary depiction of the perils of capitalism um, in modern day India, which I thought was really interesting. And then, the, um, I, just, I made a note of it here when I was reading that before, the policy director of the Adam Smith Institute, the free market think tank, admitted um, when he was in discussion on this, was that fiction was a useful tool in aiding people's understanding and humanizing issues. But he warned, there's a problem, 
Fiction works by appealing to people's emotions, not their inte intellect or rationality. Which is a little bit really like saying, well, you know, the market is not run by humans. And of course, you know, anybody who's read anything about efficient market uh, theory and, and it's uh, just got to realize that that's the whole problem. It is run by humans. Who really? invent the models with the variables that don't account for things like panic. Um, it, was there anyone else? It seems that that um, fiction is being kind of squeezed out by by the non-fiction. The memoirs come so soon. The um, the uh, YouTube videos go viral. You have the Tobin tax, etc. All these things go go viral so quickly that uh, we're already demonizing Fred the Shred, and you know, the the novel hasn't even been thought of yet. It's just it it's happening so fast. These new life forms are fascinating, aren't they? I mean, I, I'm quite interested in, in telenovels. I mean, it, it seems to me that, that my understanding of the Bernie Madoff situation is made sense of by the last series of damages. And if you look at that, that, that TV series, it, it's exactly what you describe. It's chopped up into tiny little segments. It's very, you know, the editing has become so fast and so fragmentary. That's interesting. I, I find that my, my appreciation of the way that modern narrative works, or which it could be made to work, has been remarkably sharpened by watching those two series of The Killing, that Danish cop, the serial police procedural, because, again, it's all down to data. It's, but because, because everything can be tracked back to source, because every mobile phone conversation can ultimately be tagged back. Um, it means that the characters are constantly striving to acquire information which always arrives just 10 seconds too late. You know, they arrest somebody, then comes the mobile phone call, they've got the wrong person, you have to start again and it's it, so... But this is, this, is a way, uh, this is a way in which narrative, narrative structure is changing in response to this complete sort of scattered effect of technological data, which I find very interesting. I mean, it's deeply threatening for somebody who likes writing sort of rather Placid and sequential things, which involve you know, reflection and the, you know, the, the long-term working out of moral problems. All this, this, this kind of these kind of repeated smash cuts. I think are rather, rather worrying. What do you think, John? No, yeah, I think it's, it's there. I mean, and, and you're, you're responding to it. But uh, the whole YouTube thing, that everything can be compressed into five five-minute packets. Is really I think it's a very powerful effect on our, on our culture and sensibility. Do, 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 do you think, I mean, are you worried by it or do you just accept it as a fact of life? I think it's a fact of life. Yeah. Even one minute. It's rather, I, I find it rather wonderful. I, I get the kind of Aladdin's cave. I, I was brought up in a period of shortage where you know not to eat, nothing to read, nothing to do all day, wake up and think what I did. To. But now I live in a, a, a kind of a world of such surplus. That, you know, I sort of feel almost crushed by it. It's very, very odd. I, I'm not very really good at managing that. Well, well, one of the casualties, of course, is that the line between, if we an area like this, the line between fact and fiction gets increasingly blurry. Although it's interesting to see, one of my little um, sort of guilty pleasures is uh, watching again and again John Mack, otherwise known as Mack the Knife, former chairman of Morgan Stanley. Um, tell the story of how he became the personal hero of the day the Fed called the bankers in 2008. And he tells it like a movie. I mean, he upstages Gordon Gay. This is an address to Columbia graduates or whatever. I mean, you can picture the thing, 300 grads in a room. And Mac is telling them how he told the Fed where they could shove it. Yeah. And all the characters. And he tells the story 
like, well, you, know, you should write the novel. I, in fact, that's the story that he sees, of course. That's the story of the day. The driver coming to get him, driving everybody smoking cigarettes, the big thing called Tokyo, the whole thing. Like he's, he's, creating, he's, he's creating this personal myth around him, isn't he? Which is what the very best fictional characters do. They have this kind of view. It may be an illusion, it may not, but they have something hanging before them in, in the sky that kind of sustains their belief in the kind of people they are and makes whatever happens to them palatable and, and acceptable. And I think, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a perfect example of the way in which real people do that as well as their, their fictional counterparts. Yeah, it's like a moment of Sherman McCoy and Barfra the Vanities. He talks to himself. You are Sherman, the master of the universe. He looks over at this guy reading a newspaper. Oh, you, what are you doing? Reading a newspaper. He, he constantly keeps up a, a, a dialogue with his alter ego, like we do with our, to get through the day. That's what we're doing. Yes? To what extent is the modern novel and finance also worshipping at the high altar of capitalism itself, in a way that perhaps somebody like Tolstoy might regard as being somewhat vulgar, or on the other hand, someone like Milton might actually feel that, well, the devil's far more interesting than God anyway, so let's talk about him. John? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean the, the rich are very fascinating, aren't they? I mean, sort of the, one inevitably thinks of, uh, of Scott Fitzgerald, and uh, obviously he despised the world which is depicted in The Great Gatsby, and yet was fascinated by it at the same time, which I take it as the point of your question, that, it, you know, we, that in spite of ourselves, you know, we, we, we actually, as you say, worship the golden calf. Why? Why in the desert did they have a calf, for God's sake? It should have been a sheep, shouldn't it? It was money. It was gold. Well, it, yeah. so, I, but, but why the calf? Why, why that particular animal? They wanted to milk it. I see. The novelist is called Marx, isn't it? I mean, the Marxists told us that. The commodification of existence. I mean, you know, we, we're gissing. Come on, this is yes, kind of the commodification of the human beings. I and mean, it's like the, that marvellous scene at the, uh, the art gallery, isn't it, when, in the Newcombs, when uh, Edith Newcomb, who's been, who's been uh, booked for marriage in high life, goes around, gets one of the green salt tickets, and pins it on her dress and walks around it until her parents stop her. I mean, you, you know, surely those, those, those early Victorian novels that we, we love so much are a kind of simulacrum of the, the acquisitiveness that was the middle, class, the middle class acquisitiveness that has begun to make its presence felt in Victorian society. Well, I mean, looking at myself, I, to go back to your question, I, I'm fascinated by Tamara Eccleston's crystal bath <laughs> and the fact that she has only 500 handbags, not one of which is worth under 5,000 pounds, and cost under 5,000 pounds. But why? I mean, I despise myself. <laughs> much more well, I mean, no, when I go to the hedge, I'm not going to that. I might get my hair cut once every six weeks so I can sit down and read the celebrity magazine, see what Kerry Katona is up to. You know, the latest installment. Is the late, is this, is the new boyfriend still right? You know, is she, is she off the drink? Is she off the... There's a, there's a terrible elemental pull of all of this. Yeah, I, I think celebrity <laughs> is very, very interesting because what's I, to me it seems that what people want, they want to be celebrities because they think celebrities are exempt from you know the rest of our, our problems. And I think they regard them exactly like the classical gods, that they're sort of human, but they're above it. 
and they love to see them come crashing down for the same reason. I don't suppose consciously I think of this is like the classical gods, but the sense of David Beckham, you know, if David Beckham has a fall, there'd be a lot of people cheering. Yes, there's a terrible but they, Yeah, I think they're more interested. A friend of mine married somebody incredibly rich, and we had lunch and he was talking, bemoaning the problem that he couldn't get permission for the helicopter to land in the garden of their house in West London. And I thought, come on. <laughs> I know. I, I knew you when you were a boy. You hardly had a spinning top or a pair of shoes. What are you on about parking the helicopter? But it, it is quite fascinating. But it, I think it's a really interesting question because it's to do with the transformational power of money. And, and, and the, I think a lot of these novels are not addressing the, the area below the surface, which if there is, I mean, for example, the, the challenge to these times to, to our political system, our ideas of democracy are very much tied up with free markets. Um, and what we revere as a model of how to live is, is all rooted in, in our experience. But you know, one of the strange things that's happened is that um, the terms right-wing and left-wing don't really mean anything anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I, I was talking to Bill Johnson, who's the you know, uh, Sunday Times correspondent in South Africa, and he's been accused of being right-wing. And of course, when I knew him, he was a raging Trotskyite, and that's what left-wing meant. But in fact, what it means is that he's not, he, from a very, he very quickly realized the ANC wasn't what he was pretending to be. And so the people who didn't want to rock the boat in South Africa regard him as right-wing. Even though the ANC, if there is such a thing as a right-wing, they're it, they're in charge, they have most of the money, and they have command of everything else. And they wanted to stay much the same. But it's very strange how the terms that were used, I mean, I in my youth, this was a very left-wing place, I don't suppose that's the case anymore, is it? Gates was still. I mean, I, I met, I saw, um, um, uh, what's his name, the last director resigned, let me see. Howard Howard Howard, and I know about him, he came up to me at book a dinner and he said, I love your book, there's just one problem, the FSA is not the Financial Services Agency, it's the Financial Services Authority, and I should know because I, I named them. It's a quite a male thing, isn't it, too? You've written a hell of a book. No, that's how people react to novels, isn't it? They take a particular, they process it through their own films. Yeah. Now, I once, I wrote a novel once set in Norwich, where I come from, in the 1960s, and I gave it to my brother, who's lived there all his life. And he had one comment on the hundred thousand pages that I present, hundred thousand words I presented him with, and he said, he said that that bit, that scene, where where your blow, where your character, where he goes down to Norwich, where he goes down to the city centre, and he goes to that, he goes to um, he goes to Debenham's department store. Well, he couldn't have done because it was called Curls in 1968. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, absolutely right. I take it on the chin. Yeah. And that was that was that was his criticism. But then you, you have to accept that. That's that's how people process art, isn't it, with their own. Yeah, I think it's the old argument about films. As I'm just writing the scripts of mine, that you, you, the problem is that everybody sees a novel differently, and manufactures the, the, the characters they want, and then when you see Brad Pitt cast, you go, no, well, I don't know, Brad Pitt, he's not, you know, he's completely wrong. Although I quite like to see Brad Pitt as Julian in other people's money, and that would work very well. <laughs> but it, it's, I mean, as a, just one extra point on that, as somebody who's Irish, one of the things I find very interesting about all these novels, there are no politicians. Very conveniently, bankers, the financiers are taking all the flats. They are absolutely. Just from the, uh, yeah. 
You've just but reminded me of something, actually, which is, have you read, has anyone read Anne Enright's last novel? The um, last novel, Moss, Moss, which is a very, to me, subtle um, elucidation of the Irish financial crisis. Again, not a politician in sight, just seen about ordinary people working on the periphery of um, financial service, working in marketing, things like that, and property, and about how it, how, it, how, it, how it then has an impact on them. But again, no, no kind of, no examination of the formal processes, just the fallout and the personal consequences, but I thought done in a very, very stylish and imaginative way. And I think that that goes back to, to, to what you were saying about um, your, your, your very first point, is that if there are no politicians in the story, then we're not asking or thinking about a very important issue, which is whether or not democracy is the appropriate system <coughs> when there is a financial crisis or a global crisis. I mean, one of the things that happened in Ireland, for example, is you have paralysis because you have coalition. Nothing happened. One of the things that happened here is nothing happened because there was an election coming up. So it raises the question of what kind of political system is appropriate for dealing with a disaster at that scale. So there's somebody at the back there. Angus, I'm just wondering, what, what do you think of um, using the docudrama to explain what happened in the financial crisis? Because even in, um, I was in America when all this, um, you know, happened, and even CNBC turned to docudrama to explain the financial crisis, because I think they just couldn't explain it otherwise. And it, and it, it actually was easier to understand if you had some characters and explained how they got in the mess and... It showed them, you know, going down to Washington to all the congressional hearings, and so I didn't know. There was that documentary that narrated by, um, what was it, narrated by, um, not Jason Bourne, in real life, Matt Damon. He did the narration. Yeah, I'm not thing. sure now. I can't even remember, and I think there were a few of them, but I think um, there might have been, well, I don't think on PBS, actually. I think that was um, a straight documentary, but definitely CNBC, which is really shocking. For them to, I don't think Bloomberg did it, but you know. Well, Phil, I also think that really, I don't know if you actually um, have cable, but I'm, I'm addicted to what my wife calls the um, the hippo channels at the other history channel. history programs, another program, and yeah. they, they actually insert these little dramatic moment, you know, yeah. little recreations, and, and I, I, I find it rather kind of, I mean. I, it's an addiction, of course, because um, uh, not what I'm terribly proud of. But, they, but, they, but, but it does seem to me your point is a very, is a very good one about how, in fact, you know, sort of sometimes we have to we have to use our narrative forms. You know, mm -hmm. and, I mean, Schopenhauer is very good on this. He said, you know, that that, that in fact, if, if you have a if you have a if you lose a leg, a wooden leg is very useful. It's better to have two whole legs. You know, mm -hmm. but but in fact, sometimes you know, sort of a, a kind of prosthetic device is is very useful for getting through life. And I, I think that docu, docu fiction, um, mm. docu drama, so that, that, that did, did you find it instructive? Oh, it was it was much. I mean, you know, I mean, I have a yeah. financial background, but still, it was much easier to understand. I and I think there was what was there was there were a few documentaries of the financial crisis that um, were released at the time, and they actually didn't get very good reviews. That I mean the actual documentaries. And I'm surprised there haven't been more films or, or even novels about it. It's very interesting because, in fact, we have this 
it seems to me, and speak for myself, we have this need for kind of narrative form. And one of the reasons that really, one of the things that really frustrates me about the so-called Greek crisis is that it's not like Sophocles. You know, there's not a moment at <laughs> which you get everything. You know, the the peripety, the downfall, and the anagnosis, the, the moment of recognition doesn't come. It just drags on. <laughs> there is there is no kind of. It's almost like you know, sort of, someone's not liking the story properly. Properly, you know, they reject this novel. My mind says, yeah, not, there, there is an opera in Berlin though on the Greek financial crisis. I saw it on the BBC the other day. Someone wrote it, and they're showing at the moment. Really? Yeah, really? in opera, in Berlin, somebody, I don't know. And Robert Peston isn't in it. No discussion of finance would be complete without our national treasure. Um, I, oh, yeah. Yes? I was just wondering, we've had lots of novels about the bankers and the masters of the universe. I just wondered, are we likely to see any about uh, Occupy and set in a tent around St Paul's or anything like that? That's very interesting, actually. Yeah, that, that's the other character, because uh, in, in the, 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 we've had economic migrants from Paul's, so we haven't had any Occupy. No, no, no. The beginnings of social unrest or any, uh, any rioters, and then you would think that that would... You would have thought that um, a couple of them might have been working on some of their scripts while they were down there. And that would, uh, because again, missing from this is, of course, in a sense, everybody has a role. The consumer is not in, in these novels either. The, the, all of us who are out there with our credit cards who were part of, and this, this story you're talking about earlier, Friends Who's Not So Destroyed, okay. have also not appeared. So, uh, uh, my personal feeling is that there are going to be lot of, lots of stages for this, because it's here to stay. And what we're seeing is, is in some cases, very early stage with this huge cost. And, and, in a sense, the fiction may become more interesting as it becomes more closely focused on particular characters, like in other people's Isn't it a general rule that you don't get good war novels during wars? The great war novels of the First World War come out in the, in the 1920s, mm -hmm. sort of like all quiet on the Western Front. 1928, yeah. Goodbye. Mm -hmm. um, and in the, in the Second World War as well, you start until the war is over, you get the naked and the dead and the cruel sea and the And we so see that with the 9-11. Yeah, yeah, the, 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 um, the last one, the submission, so many years after the, the early responses, it's much more nuanced. So it's a bit like cutting off the dinosaur's tail, you know, it takes an hour before it screams, really. Um, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I think well, I found some of this novel was interesting, Alone yeah. in Berlin, because it was written in 1948. Is it an honest novel? I think I think you're questioning that. Well, I think it, I, I mean, it's a fine novel. Yeah. Very interesting novel. And uh, he was persecuted, horribly yeah. persecuted himself. But this notion that there are, there are lots of good Germans around is there? Well, yeah, I mean, I read a novel about the resistance in Montreux and so on. And, um, <coughs> It, well, somebody said to me that they weren't, you know, they were, they died very bravely and so on, but they weren't the real issue. Mm. You know, they were, they, as mistrust of Adam Montrop was really because he believed he was quite close to sharing the same beliefs as Nazis in a way, as a especially privileged position of, of Germans in the world and in history. And Berlin, of course, wouldn't go near that, and he never trusted Adam Montrop again, even after he was hanged. Mm. 
von Stauffenberg was a devotee of Dodger Poet. Stefan Georga, who was very close to being made the poet laureate by the Nazis, but luckily for him he died just before we agreed. But the Stauffenberg brothers were in, in thought to him, and they were deep with his heirs. This is Stefan Georga, whose name, I mean, a very a hugely widely known poet, and now nobody ever mentions it. Yes? I just had a quick question with regards to character and taking on finance in the novel. Um, and the novel I was thinking about that uh, takes the finance world uh, is Cosmopolis by Don DeLillo, um, and where he takes one character through it. And, and it feels to me that it falls very short, uh, particularly to DeLillo's standards. But maybe actually what one's waiting for is a bigger novel. Um, that even m maybe more like Lanchester's, but but further on, um, and the the novel I think about and is Infinite Jest, um, and we, you're talking a lot about data overloading and, and trying to represent that in fictional form, um, and there to me is a, a sort of bolder attempt at taking on the complexity of the world that we live in, which, which very much ties into the abstractions of finance and data overload and, and the sort of, you know, that, that infinite jest of being stuck blank in front of a screen in euphoria but dead because of it um, seems to hold some of that complexity. So I, I just wanted to question the notion of focusing purely on character and obliquity and maybe a bolder take on um, finance too. I think that's a very interesting question and it's reminded me of um, a novel which is not so much about the city because you barely know what's going on in it but it's about it's Joshua Ferris's novel We Can We Can We Came to the End. Now it's a novel about office life um, and it, it has two um, it has two very really pertinent characteristics which could lead, I think, in the direction that you're pointing to. One, very unusually for novel, it's written in the first person plural. It's we all the time. We did this, we did that. And, and it's this collective sense that you very you very rarely get in a novel because you're seeing a number of different standpoints. Uh, and it also it, it seems to me that, the, that it regards or it examines the, the office life that it's um, that it's discussing as um, an organism, you know, as something which is kind of growing on its own terms, that is larger than the sum of its individual parts. And, and I think if you, if you did that with, you know, say a city firm, and you examined it from all the angles available, and yet, so I don't know how it would take a genius to do this, and yet, and, and brought them all together to, pr to produce, you know, something again, which is larger than all the individual, the idea of something actually existing beyond the people that was at work, you know, in the marketplace and in the world, I think that would be an extraordinary, that would be an extraordinary book, but I don't know who could do it amongst the modern range of novels. But I think it's, I think it's a very interesting idea. But again, it requires, it not only requires you to be a brilliant novelist, it requires you to have extraordinary expertise, and it also requires you to be able to somehow bring, use that expertise inconspicuously, rather than dropping in these very brainy essays about how finance works, which get in the way of the way that fiction works. But I think it's a very, it's a very good, a very good plan. 
And it, it feeds into, it's exactly, it feeds into this, this increasing low-level um, incidence of people's lives being shaped by, and identities being, being shaped by the jobs that they do. So not just the, the processes and the detail of the job, but their way of thinking about the world. And, and, and that novel was so effective because it was the collective. When you work within a, in a corporate environment, with, with my experience, you become part of a community. And that there is increasingly, the longer you're there, the more you, you behave as a pack. Um, and that, that is something I think that has not been covered terribly well in fiction. And it may be because of this, this thing, how, how do you do a, a community point of view? How do you find a way of representing We're seeing as novelists basically live on and work on their own. Yeah, so I mean, it's a weird thing. Them. Somebody wrote, might have been you, a piece about work. And how, I think it was me. How few novelists read Ellisford work? No, the, the problem is, you see, that if you, if you are, as I was part of that, if you are not, as you work in the city, you are, you know, you might as well be wearing a sort of a pointy hat on your head. You know, I can remember being given that. I remember once having an assessment with my line manager and saying, yeah, you know, you're, you're pretty good at what you do. You know, everyone sort of likes the stuff that you do, but. Um, you're not really a team player, are you? And I said, "What are you? I'm not going." I said, "I'm not going on the, uh, you know, on the. I'm not going on the away days." I said, "I, I, said, I belong to a recognisable type." I said, "I am the clever solitary. Leave me in a room with the work you want done, and I'll do it. But don't expect me to. You don't expect me to talk to my fellow workers." I didn't last for a long time. The door was opening there. Right there. <laughs> can, can, can I ask you a question? I mean, is infinite just worth the huge investment of time? It, it will take to read it. I haven't read it. I just looked at it and sort of. It's absolutely worth it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And how, 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 how many hours are you talking about here? About <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, I'm, I don't mean that facetiously. Yeah. And it's worth that. It's like Gravity's Rainbow or sort of yes. the Bible. Or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can I, I? Do you not find this sometimes? Because you can't. You can't believe what people say about novels, even if they're reviewers like as honest as David. Um, and I, 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 feel, I sometimes feel at a loss about where I'm going to put my time. Do you, do you find that as well? I mean, sort of well, I mean, one of the things I was thinking about with regards to this and finance in the novel is um, that anyone who writes a good enough book about finance will never be read by a, a large person working in a bank, for example, because mm -hmm. it just wouldn't have the time to do yeah. it. And even if they had a holiday and no children and, and you know, took it all. So there's definitely a sense of how is a novel actually going to have an impact on the financial world. They'll read it to see if they're in it, you know, <laughs> and if they're smarter than the characters in it. And I, I can remember tra traders reading uh, when it, the Bonfire of the Fantasies came out. They just read a bit about the trader to see if they could think of a better strategy than the She's Card deal. That, that's a little bit, oh yeah, yeah. And the problem with that strategy was. Right today, Mark, two weeks can do this. You know. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to give us our email so he can let you know. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> um, we're bang, oh look at that, perfect timing, 8.30. Is there anybody else who, who can't contain themselves? Sorry, you've definitely had enough. That was a lot of ground to cover. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for uh, for coming along. It's been really interesting. Um, you've been a fantastic audience. I have reading recommendations as well. Thank you. Thank you.